0: Good afternoon, the Tony G Show, Season 7, Episode 3, set to begin. Will McCormick is out today, so it's just Tony G bringing you this episode. Uh, We look forward to a good episode. We have a great show planned for today, but even a bigger day planned for tomorrow. Episode number one of our Tony G Show interviews will be tomorrow. That'll be conducted with Ben Cole, so we look forward to releasing that. We've been advertising that, and are going to continue doing so today. Again, Ben Cole, the... Senior starting quarterback for the SNC football team is coming around to the Tony G Show interviews. Episode number one of the season uh, for that of the September series. Luca Kenyon will also be on the show towards the end of September. She is the SNC women's golfer. That is our first batch of interviews, our September series of the Tony G Show interviews. So we look forward to releasing that with Ben Cole tomorrow, Wednesday, September 15th. As for today, as I mentioned, we do have a good show planned for today. Here's the thing, I I get into a little bit of a a Twitter skirmish, I think it was last Thursday, it was something that I had no, I did not anticipate would blow up the way that it did. MLB on Fox tweeted out something, and we'll get into this as, as the show gets going, but they tweeted out something, I responded to it, asked for a couple friends to respond, I tagged them. Uh, The Fonder Friends, friends of the show, Sam and Jason. I asked them to respond to it, and it seemed like everybody in the world did. A lot of people responded to this tweet I had, and the majority of them disagreed with me. So we'll get into one of the cases that I had and one of my arguments. That'll that'll lead off the show, first segment. Our second segment, we're coming off of week one in the NFL. So I will look at the worst-looking offense in week one. And I will recap Tony G's picks of the week to end the show. Not my best performance to start to start the season. I was hoping for a little bit better, a little bit more productive of a start. It is what it is. Noel Will McCormick today will miss him. Something going on around SNC St. Norbert College that we are on. I am actually recording the the show a little bit earlier than what we're used to, so I can get out of Tony G's studios and and go uh, partake in what's going on at St. Norbert College uh, for SNC Radio. So so we will be doing that. That's why Will McCormick is not in today. We'll miss him. He'll be back on Thursday. He also, got to give thanks to him before we get into the show. Got to give thanks to him for producing the interview that we have. That's, how, that's his role that he will partake in. He volunteered for it. He says he likes doing it. So I'll give praise to him when he comes on the show on Thursday. But he does a great job. Producing Our Tony G Show interviews. That's something that he takes off of my shoulders so I don't have to watch the volumes and stuff like that. I I just get to be the host and interview our guest. And then uh, I, I take and edit it all up. But Will does a great job producing the show live in the moment. So I have to give him praise for that throughout the course of this week. Again, I'll do that when he comes back on. Spend enough time with the introduction. Let's get into our episode. I look forward to making some of these arguments for today's tony g show this is season seven episode three of the tony g show you're listening to the tony g show now in its seventh season subscribe to the show now on apple podcasts google podcasts spotify or wherever you get your podcasts follow the show on twitter at willis 5312 and at tony g nation also on instagram at tony Ordana. Now, along with Will McCormick, here's the host, Tony G. So let's hop right into it. Again, I got myself into some Twitter trouble. I don't want to say trouble. It wasn't like anyone was calling for my head or anything. But I got myself into a discussion on Twitter that I think is worth mentioning on the show. MLB on Fox tweeted out a graphic of players who are eligible for the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame in 2022. Guys including Carl Crawford, the speedster from the Tampa Bay Rays, Eventually spent some time in Los Angeles as well, among other places. Prince Fielder, the sweet swinging left-hander who had that power stroke, made his name a household name with the Milwaukee Brewers. Spent some time in Detroit among uh, Texas for the Rangers as well. Uh, Also guys like Jake Peavy, dominant pitcher uh, for some time. Spent some time in uh, San Francisco, Boston, and the Padres as well. Mark Teixeira, who's known for his... Switch-handed hitting abilities. AJ Pierzinski a catcher. I don't think there's any chance he gets in. Um, but I mentioned this. I, I had responded to the tweet and asked for a couple of my friends to respond to it. Friends of the show, by the way. I responded to this tweet, and I said, Ortiz this year, I said, Howard and Nathan next year, after this first year. And then maybe Lincecum at some point. I wasn't too confident in the Lincecum one. I just threw that in there. I'll admit that. But I got a lot of beef... Back towards me against one player. And that was Ryan Howard. And I was surprised at this. I think it's very hard to make an argument against Ryan Howard. And his resume. And try to hold him out of the Hall of Fame. I think that is a for sure Hall of Famer. Maybe not first ballot. I'll give you that. Because the whole voting selection process is weird. These baseball writers get like a a handout paper that you get in class. Or something like that. And then like pencil it in and then mail it back like it i don't know i think the process is dumb and stupid and i think there's a lot of controversy that comes with it seemingly every year you can't argue against that it. it's not controversial and these baseball writers some of them just vote i don't get their voting selection process but most of the time they aren't on the same page most of the time it's just kind of like a crapshoot, this guy will get in, this guy You have to get to a certain percentage to get in. It's a whole weird process. If you're not following along, I don't blame you because it's a dumb process as to how players get voted into the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame. But, either way, that doesn't take away from my argument that I think Ryan Howard is a for sure Hall of Famer. I don't know how people make an argument against that. And a lot of what I was hearing... Was why would Howard ever get in? Ryan Howard's got no chance of getting in to the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame. How could you vote for Ryan Howard? Ryan Howard's not getting in. I heard a lot of that. I was taken aback by it. Really, I was surprised that this amount of people were against my opinion of Ryan Howard being a Hall of Famer. I was surprised at it. I, I don't understand where the controversy comes in here. So you know Tony G does his homework and I did my homework in this argument I you know the Twitter conversation continued but we'll just talk about it in the context of the show. Ryan Howard spent 6 years, 6 seasons, 6 seasons back to back, 6 consecutive seasons as the best player in baseball. The best player in baseball. All of Major League Baseball. One of the best players in the world. And I only say one of the best cuz I don't know Who the best players in Korea were, Cuba, I can't compare that. I don't know those stats. I don't know, especially in this time frame, I have no idea. But I know that as the best player in Major League Baseball in a lineup, Ryan Howard has a good chance of being one of the best baseball players in the world. Those six seasons, from 2006 to about 2011. Starts here, 2006. 58 home runs. 149 runs batted in. He batted 313, won an MVP award. Followed that up with 47 home runs, 136 runs driven. And followed that up with 48-146, 45-141, 31-108, and 33-116 and and in 2011. Career batting average of 258. You take out some of the oddball years where he wasn't overly productive. God forbid that happens and that batting average increases to about the 270-280 range. Here's the one stat I do want to mention that I don't think people take into consideration enough, especially in this argument, is the amount of times that Ryan Howard was walked in this six-year stretch from 2006 to 2011. 2006 and 2007 alone, alone, he was walked 215 times. 108 in 2006, 107 in 2007. Followed those two years up with 81, 75, 59, and 75. Two factors were involved in him getting these numbers at the plate in these walks. They were either patience, which again is the mark of a great hitter, not swinging at pitches outside the zone, which is definitely involved here. Knowing his zone, knowing the zone, Knowing where pitchers are going to try to pitch him and knowing whether they're going to try to pitch him in the zone, try to get him to chase, which he didn't do a lot of. So it was either patience or the other characteristic involved here in fear. The fact that other pitchers and other pitching staffs and other teams just feared him at the plate. Ryan Howard played such a presence in that Philadelphia Phillies lineup that other teams didn't want to pitch to him. That other teams were like, you know what, let's just stay away from this guy. It's like the Barry Bonds effect. Where Barry Bonds was walked however many times because he was Barry freaking Bonds. Right? Because he was the guy who was going to hit a home run eh, one time out of two. Every It seemed like every, I don't know the exact numbers, but every two at-bats he was hitting a home run. Remember there was the occurrence where he was walked with the bases loaded late in the game because it was either he's going to hit a grand slam and put the Giants up by two, three runs, or we're going to walk him, concede a run, and still have the lead. So they walked him. It's the Barry Bonds effect. It's a present thing in baseball. Now, Ryan Howard wasn't that because I think that was, you know, Barry Bonds was like, holy cow, like next level. It's hard to be that. Even for Hall of Famers, it's hard to reach that, that standard. Point here still being that other teams did not want to pitch to Ryan Howard for a reason, because he was that much of a factor, because he was that much of uh, he held that much of a presence. Okay, so you, you take this out, you say he he's going to get into the Hall of Fame because he walks a lot. He walked a lot. No, obviously not. There was obviously other factors that played a key role in him. Earning a, what I think is a Hall of Fame resume. Something that statistics cannot capture. Or I suppose now with this new age analytical, in some way it probably does. But back in 2008, Ryan Howard was the keystone player that gave the Philadelphia Phillies their World Series championship. Again, the year was 2008. You could make this argument that, oh, there was a lot of talent on that team. Chase Utley, Jimmy Rollins, or, or the pitching stabs, Holiday, Oswalt. Hamels. Yeah, I get that. But what World Series team doesn't have that type of roster? Look at the Giants dynasty from 2010 to 15. Brandon Belt, Brandon Crawford, Buster Posey, Hunter Pence for a few of those years. Look at their pitching staffs. Brian Wilson back when he was a thing. Tim Lincecum, who was part of this conversation for a brief moment. Even Jake Peavy was part of that team for a year or so. A few years, actually, I think, now that I think back on it. Point is, you can't have a World Series team if you don't have a roster that's built to succeed. Okay, so the Phillies have that. Does that take away the value of a Ryan Howard? No, I don't think it should. I certainly don't think it should. Ryan Howard was the keystone player. Without Ryan Howard, that World Series never happens. And I'm not willing to hear an argument that it was about any other player. Maybe a holiday because he was so dominant. But that was a pitching staff. He was a pitcher on a pitching staff that was loaded. I mean, look at the Tigers when they made their World Series run. They didn't get to a World Series. But that that deep postseason push they had when they had Verlander, when they had Max Scherzer, young Max Scherzer, when they had Doug Pfister. You take out one of those elements. You take out Verlander, I think... Scherzer, Fister, and the rest of that rotation, and all of their bullpen as well. Back when Joaquin Benoit was a thing, well, it just goes to show you how quick closers turn and and are forgotten about. Brian Wilson, Joaquin Benoit. Okay, back to the conversation though. Tigers are still in the mix if if a, a Scherzer or a Verlander wasn't present, especially Doug Pfister. I've stayed away from that name because Verlander and Scherzer are so dominant that, of course, they'd... But you take out one of those pieces, there's still a dominant team, dominant pitching staff. I think the same thing is present in Philadelphia in that 2008 run. You take out a Holiday, you take out an Oswald, you take out Cole Hamels. Okay, maybe... They're a little less dominant, but they're still good. They're still going to make a World Series run and push for the playoff because their roster is that dominant. So if I had to point to one guy from each World Series team for the last decade that was a Keystone player, when I get to 2008, that was over a decade ago, so let's go a decade and a half. Forget it's 2021 sometimes. Life goes fast. Let's go back to, if I had to pick a, a player from each World Series team for the last decade and a half, That their team would not win the World Series if this certain player was not on the roster. I'd go to 2008, I'd go right to Ryan Howard in Philadelphia. Right to Ryan Howard, no doubt in my mind. The most dominant player for six consecutive years played a huge role in bringing a World Series to Philly. This 2008 World Series team in Philadelphia, in part because of Ryan Howard, mostly because of Ryan Howard, of course there were other players involved in the stat I'm about to bring up, but mostly because of Ryan Howard, had the second most home runs in 2008 with 214. The first was the Chicago White Sox with 235. From the years of 2006 to 2009, four straight seasons because of Ryan Howard, they were the top four teams in home runs. I don't know of too many occasions where a player has this big of an impact on a World Series team, on a contending team, and for this amount of consecutive seasons. And the occasions when I do come up with a name that had this much of an impact, they're Hall of Famers. My argument here stands. Ryan Howard is a Hall of Famer. I get it's hard to get in on the first ballot, even a second, maybe even a third. But at some point, Ryan Howard's going to walk up to the podium and make his Hall of Fame speech, whether you like it or not. Ryan Howard's a Hall of Famer. Some of his accolades and awards, not to mention that MVP in 2006. He was a Rookie of the Year, World Series Champion. He was in the MVP discussion, got votes for those six consecutive years from 2006 to 2011, received votes Every single year. Even when you look at the context outside of these years, they weren't the most, the most impressive because he dealt with injuries, only played 71 games and 80 games in 2012 to 13. Bring him back to 2014, 15, 16, towards the latter of his career 23 home runs, 95 driven in 2014, 23, 77, and 25, and 59 in 2015 and 16. Didn't play the same amount of games because he was still kind of injured, you know, the 129, 122 uh, amount of games, 112, excuse me, the amount of games he played in 2015, 2016. Even towards the back end of his career, 2014, he played 153 games, missed nine games of a 162-game schedule. Hall of Famer. Don't want to hear an argument against it. I, you know, I suppose I will, and I in many ways have over Twitter, but I don't, You can't tell me that at some point these types of numbers aren't going to result in a Hall of Fame resume. Now, we can talk about the selection process a little bit more, too, but I think enough has been said about that through the years that you can't. I I mean, the ways to improve it are going to take a couple years to implement. You know, it's just like anything in baseball, there's going to be trial and error. So I think the selection process for Hall of Famers by baseball writers is going to stick around. And usually what will happen is baseball writers will tweet out, again, because they get this, I don't know if it's like a Google Doc and they print it off at home or what, but it's like almost identical to something I would get in my History 122 class. Like it is like a sheet of paper and just names next to it and you mark it off with like a pen or a pencil and then sign it at the bottom, and then like mail it back. And they take pictures of these and put them on social media, their Twitters and stuff like that, where they have most of their following. But I'm not kidding. It is, like, identical to, like, a pop quiz. I don't know. It, it, there's ways to improve that, I'm sure. I think it's time to certainly look deeper into that. You know, baseball writer having the baseball writers vote in, that's Okay. You know, I guess that that's that's part of anything with sports. But there's got to be a better way to conduct this. And for the amount of years, and here's something that, this is a Jason Fonder conversation too, our friend of the show that we have on at least once a season. We look forward to bringing him back at some point in season seven. But this is worth talking about now with the discussion that we're having. Is it time to put in some of these steroid names? Is it time to put in... An Alex Rodriguez, a Sammy Sosa, a Barry Bonds, a a, a Roger Clemens. Is it time to put in a David Ortiz who is eligible in 2022? Is it time? I've come around. I came into college four years ago before the Tony G show was a thing thinking, if you use steroids, you're not getting into the Hall of Fame. That's not an option. I have... Since changed my mind as I've grown as a person, as I've grown as a sports fan, and grown as a baseball fan as well. I think that they hold a place in the history of baseball. You can't talk about the years of baseball from maybe the early to mid-90s to the late 2000s without talking about some of those key names. Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa. Alex Rodriguez whether you like him or not you know the thing with Alex Rodriguez is he's done so much more to his possible Hall of Fame resume to you know taint that resume other than steroids i mean suing baseball on different occasions st- the lying about it i mean it's just he he completely tainted his image and he's trying to recover it now and i think he's doing an all right job of doing that but you you just don't forget some of those th- those actions and those behaviors that he conducted himself with. I mean, he retired like mid-season of a competitive season for the Yankees. He was like, yeah, I'll just call it here. Yeah, this is good. I'll, I'll, I'll call it a career. I, I don't really know why either. Was it because he didn't get enough time? He didn't get enough playing time? He just wasn't productive, so he wasn't getting enough playing time? The way he quit. I mean, that exit is it, as if he didn't do enough to taint his image. Quit mid sea I think it was August that he told the Yankees, yeah, I'll call it here. This is a good career. I'll I'll, I'll end it here. And then sued Major League Baseball. What? What are you doing? But if you're going to put in these steroid guys, Sammy Sosa, like I mentioned, Roger Clemens, do it in one fell swoop, get it over with. Peel the Band-Aid off. I don't think there's a valid argument to keep him out anymore. I mean, they played a part, a key role in the history of baseball. Played a key role in keeping baseball alive. You know, after the strike and after, you know, they couldn't get games going. A lot, of, They lost a lot of fans, a lot of their audience. These players came at a time and produced at this level, whether on steroids or not, at a rate that picked up the audience level, picked up the viewership level to the point that Major League Baseball adequately needed it to so they could continue to brand themselves, rebrand themselves, and expand and evolve as a sport. That came at a crucial time for baseball. They saved the sport of baseball. And I'm talking like I'm a baseball historian or like I was alive during this time. I was very young during this time. And I can still sit here on the Tony G Show and say that. Their key role saved the game of baseball, based on what I've learned, based on what I've heard, Granted, the diehard, fan, die-hard fans of baseball would probably stick around, but the casual fan, it brought back. These guys saved the game of baseball in terms of popularity level. If it wasn't for them, Major League Baseball, and many people could probably make this argument now, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't hear it, but many people would probably make this argument now. But it, anyways, if they weren't around, Major League Baseball would not be the major sport that it is. It would be swamped and swallowed by National Football League, by uh, the NBA, by the NHL. I don't think it is now. I don't think it takes third place to these third or fourth place to these bigger sports. I think it's a little more up there, it's com- definitely competing to be up there. It definitely wouldn't be an Olympic sport now you got the World Baseball Classic. you got the Olympics that baseball is involved in now. Baseball is a worldwide thing now. And if it wasn't for the strike era, the steroid era, and what is now baseball, because of this steroid era and these players, they saved the game of baseball. I don't think it would be as national of a sport, or at least America wouldn't have as big of a role in this national sport, international sport, I should say, that it does now. That's a good way to put it. If it wasn't for these players in Major League Baseball, in the United States of America, saving the game of baseball, the game of Major League Baseball, it wouldn't be up there with the Koreas, with the Cubas, with the Dominican Republics, in this World Baseball Classic, in this Olympic atmosphere. I mean, you don't think enough about how big of a role these guys played in saving the game of baseball. So I've come around to the perception that if if you're going to put one in or if you're going to hear arguments for one, put them all in. Get it over with. Pete Rose. This is another name that I think is a little bit absurd that he's not in. I understand why baseball major league baseball as a sport and an organization and a company is mad at Pete Rose and resentful to him, and in some ways hateful towards him, they're not going to put him in the Hall of Fame. They're not going to make him a Hall of Famer. I understand why they're mad at him. I don't understand the depth to which their scars are with Pete Rose. I understand why they're mad at him. Let me say that again. I understand why they're mad at him. I don't understand why they're so mad at him. I don't get it. You really want to keep him out of the Hall of Fame. That I don't understand. That I don't get. But maybe there's a certain way to work it so that he's recognized in some way, but not a Hall of Famer. I don't know. There's got to be something done here, though, that Pete Rose needs to be a Hall of Famer. But it just goes to show you the subjectivity That comes with the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame. That there's no blueprint for how to get in. There's absolutely no consistency. I I mean, and I always look at if you get 3,000 hits, if you get like 2,500 hits and have a a, a respectful batting average, respectful home run number, then you're going to get in. Regardless of that, though, I don't understand with some of these fringe players. Ryan Howard, to me, is a Hall of Famer. Come back to that argument. But now off to this tangent I've gone myself into of steroid-era players, David Ortiz, Alex Rodriguez, and Pete Rose, who gambled and whatever that he's not getting in. I think the subjectivity of Major League Baseball Hall of Fame is something that needs to be analyzed a little bit further and more in-depth. Regardless, Ryan Howard, Hall of Famer, throwing that out there, final answer, Ryan Howard's a Hall of Famer. The impact he had is just undeniable, indeniable. I mean, come on now. I'm not saying that he was God, okay, at the plate. I said it multiple times during this argument. He's not a first ballot, maybe not a second ballot, maybe even not a third ballot. But a Hall of Famer no less. Productive, impactful, carried that presence to him, won a World Series, played the, key, the, the highest role in bringing that World Series to uh, Philadelphia. It's my final word on it. Ryan Howard's a Hall of Famer. Not a segue. Again, no Will McCormick, you're listening to The Tony G Show, Season 7, Episode Number 3. Segue to uh, the NFL. There was a lot to take away from week one, and I think the argument that I want to go to in this discussion, I'm going to give you the worst looking offense of week one. I could give you the Green Bay Packers because they look terrible, and I think they looked worse than the team I'm about to name. But I was just more prepared to make an argument about this team than I was about the Packers. I thought the Packers were going to be a lot better coming into week one. Had them picked in my Tony G's Picks of the Week. We'll get that towards the end of the show. I think the Packers were definitely probably the worst overall team of Week 1. But if we're going to look at just wor- worst offense, I'm going to go with the Pittsburgh Steelers. They looked, they looked like a failed zone type of offense. They looked lost. They looked inconsistent. They looked unfluid. Is it uncommon for Week 1? No, pro- probably You know that could play a part in it. As the season goes on, they'll figure themselves out a little bit better, have a little bit more of an identity towards their offense. I still think that they were the worst offense in football for week one. Not overall team. That was the Green Bay Packers. Wow, did they get canned. But the Pittsburgh Steelers were just bad. I mean, they couldn't get anything going. Couldn't get uh, their, their rookie running back Najee Harris involved. I mean, they kept trying to and trying to, and they just couldn't get any momentum with him. They couldn't get their young wide receivers Chase Claypool, Deontay Johnson, some touches. They were trying. Even tried to get Juju Smith-Schuster in the mix. They were trying. Even tried to get Eric Ebron in the mix. They were trying, but they just weren't doing. I think a lot of it has to stem from Ben Roethlisberger. I do. I really do. I don't think. I mean, I think it's time to cash in for Big Ben. It's it's go home, man. I thought this last year when he re-signed for his last year here in Pittsburgh in 2021. I thought that, man, you got to go for Pittsburgh so they can move on, find their new young quarterback. And for you, man, I mean, you were getting beat up. chewed up and spit out on the field. It's time to go. And I reiterate that now. Granted, he didn't take too much of a beating in week one. It was a tough defense for Buffalo. But regardless, Beg Ben did not look good. He did not look like the power arm that he has been in the past. He didn't look accurate. He didn't look fluid. His timing was off. He looked a little bit rushed. Always has his feet set, so I can't say that. But it just wasn't working in in Buffalo for Pittsburgh. It just wasn't working. Big Ben could not get anything going. I blame Big Ben for the reason that this is the worst-looking offense of Week 1. Pittsburgh did—and I said this on the Tony G Show, I think it was last Thursday, when Will and I looked into the most competitive division. I said it was the AFC North. And I think it might be. There's some good football being played. Browns took the, the Chiefs to the wire in Kansas City. Ravens took the Raiders to the wire in Las Vegas. The Raiders played well. Bengals even showed signs of impressing. But Pittsburgh, to me, and I said it on Thursday, that's what I was getting to, Pittsburgh is the least impressive team in this division, and I reiterate that after week one. That is not a good football team. That is no way. Nope. That is not a good football team. They're not the worst, but they are not good. They are bad in many different facets of the game, offense being one of them. You look at that game that they played with, Uh, the Buffalo Bills, and the scores that Pittsburgh had. Pittsburgh did did win 23-16, but their first offensive touchdown only came late in the fourth quarter, and it was only set up because of a controversial pass interference call. If it wasn't for that call, I mean, this call changed the outcome of the game. If it wasn't for that call, Steelers don't score, changed the complete outcome of the game. This call did. But it wasn't for that. Steelers don't score. Bills get the ball back. Bills score, and it's a, different, it's a different game. And then their second touchdown that they scored was on a blocked punt TD. So if it wasn't for special teams, then this game would have been... The Steelers should have lost this game. This game should belong to the Buffalo Bills. Now granted, the blocked punt, you know, that cost them. But if that doesn't happen, with how uncommon that is... Final score, as it were then, you know, you take out the two touchdowns, the 14 points. 16-9, to 9, the Bills win. Now, of course, things may play out a little differently, but I stand by my assumption here that if the Steelers don't score those two touchdowns, the controversial pass interference call, the block touchdown, block punt for a touchdown, it's a completely different game and the Bills win. Steelers are sitting at 0-1. Steelers are the least impressive team in this division. Will they get more fluent as the season goes on? Yeah, anybody will. Yeah. Are the Steelers going to contend for this division? Oh, no. no. No way. There's no chance. Steelers are the least impressive team in this division. And I, again, I've said it multiple times, reiterate that point after week one. Not only all of this pursued throughout the game. Or persisted throughout the game. But the Steelers looked bad in the red zone. They looked unfluent. They didn't look good. They didn't look like they knew what they were doing. They didn't look like they had a plan or a direction. It seemed to me like they planned to not be in the red zone at all. I mean, that's how bad their red zone offense was. It didn't look productive. It didn't look fluent. It didn't look good in any facet of the game. There's these stupid old played calls that... I mean, I don't know if it's Mike Tomlin and his time to go in Pittsburgh as well, but... I mean, something's got to change in Pittsburgh for them to compete. I mean that wholly. I don't know if it's Mike Tomlin. I'm pretty sure it's Big Ben. If you give Mike Tomlin a season or two with a new quarterback, maybe see what he can do. But Big Ben's got to go to start things off in Pittsburgh, man. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. I do not buy into the Steelers this season in any any point in the, in the season. I guarantee you they will not compete at the level that many people are probably thinking they will. Steelers fans are probably thinking they will. It's a tough division, man. You you can't tell me that the Steelers are going to contend in this division. It's going to be ugly for them this year. It's going to be ugly. I don't know if what Big Ben was hoping to get out of this season coming back, if he was hoping for a playoff run, a Super Bowl run, a Super Bowl ring. He ain't getting it. He ain't getting any one of those three. It's one of those sorry, not sorry situations. I keep saying I'm sorry. I'm not really sorry. I mean, it's I'm being matter-of-fact because it's the truth. Pittsburgh is not going to compete this year. What did I have them at like five and twelve? Maybe six and thirteen. I think I had them at six and thirteen last Thursday. Either way. This win was lucky, and they aren't going to have many more. You can't. You can't win a division based on luck. You can't do it. You can't win a Super Bowl based on luck. It won't happen. And so I think the same is true here. You're not going to win many more games this season with the Pittsburgh Steelers based on luck. They got the talent. I mean, they got a lot of young pieces, a lot of talent pieces around their offense. Good defense as well. I mean, you can't underestimate that. Defense wins a championship, sure. But you need an offense to score. And that's an offense I don't buy into on a team I don't buy into with a coach and quarterback duo who I don't buy into. I think one of those two pieces has to go, and I think logic, just based on the age of Big Ben, says it's going to be Big Ben. He'll retire at the end of this year, walk off into the sunset, Mike Tomlin gets a new quarterback, and things will start to work out again in Pittsburgh. Then I like him. Then I buy into him a little bit more. Right now, though, I don't. I don't see Pittsburgh as a team that anyone will fear. You can walk into Pittsburgh tomorrow and beat them. That's what I think of Pittsburgh. I don't think they're going to beat the Ravens a whole lot. I don't think they got a good chance against the Browns. I don't like their matchup against the Bengals, but I think they'll win one if not both of those games. No, I, I think just one. I don't like their matchup against the Bengals. Improved offensive line. For Cincinnati might stop that pass rush of the Steelers. New wide receivers, old cornerbacks for Pittsburgh. New wide receivers in uh, Cincinnati. I don't. I don't like the matchup. I don't do it. I no. I don't think the steel. The Steelers are going to win one, maybe two division games this year. I give them one against Cincinnati. They'll have Cincinnati at home. They'll beat them. I like them against. The Ravens at home, they'll beat them. They're going to get swept against the Browns this year. I'll say it. I did. Prove me wrong, Pittsburgh. They're going to get swept against Cleveland. I like what Cleveland's... Cleveland's... If you're going to give me a team to fear, what team do you fear in this division? Cleveland. They just took Kansas City to the wire in Kansas City. That's tough to do. That is a feat not many accomplish. You give me a team to fear, I fear the Cleveland Browns. I don't think, I don't know if they'll win the division, but that's the team I fear in that division for sure. 100%. Let's segue like into some predictions. The Tony G Show picks of the week. Tony G's picks of the week are in week number one. Came into the season 71 and 46. It's a winning percentage of about 60%. So 60% of the time, I'm right with these picks. Uh, Not this week. Started off on the right track, just barely. Buccaneers who came in seven and a half point favorites. I don't pick against the spread, by the way. I've had people ask me that now that I'm including spreads and favorites and all that stuff. I don't pick against the spread. That's not what the pick is. The pick is just the straight up game and I predict the score. If the score is wrong, the score is wrong. But I just, my record is based on the teams that I pick to win. I don't pick against the spread. I just include that for information. Cowboys at Buccaneers. Again, seven and a half point favorites were the Buccaneers coming into today. And they did win 31-29. I had them winning 28-17. A bit closer, higher scoring of a game than I thought it would be. But I started off one all, and fell downhill from there. Sunday noon, Cardinals-Titans. Favorites by three points the Titans were. And I said Titans at home. I like what they're doing. I like Derrick Henry. Titans are better coached than the Cardinals. Did not look like it at all. Cardinals swept the floor with that Tennessee defense. I said Titans at home 24-20. Cardinals came into Tennessee, got the win 38-13 on 1-1. Sunday, 3-30 rolls around. Packers at Saints. And, you know, this gets on my my backside now. I was going to pick Saints, and I was like, you know what? I might get some backlash for that. I think that this is the last dance for the Packers. They're going to look like a team that is hungry and ready to go. That's what Devontae Adams has been saying. This looks like a hungry team. I said Packers 21-17 on the road in Jacksonville against the New Orleans Saints. Uh, no. Not even close. 38-3. The pounding of the Green Bay Packers by the New Orleans Saints. 38-3. Wow. Did not see that coming. I don't think the Packers did. I don't even think the Saints did. Jameis Winston lights out, man. Barely got himself over 100 yards, but netted himself five touchdowns and no interceptions. He looks good. So I'm 1-2 and two in my picks. Sunday night rolls around. Bears at Rams. I said Rams in a shutout, 24-0. And was close. Was close until that second half late in the ball game. The Rams did end up winning 34-14. The shutout prediction was incorrect. I'm still 2-2 two two in my picks, heading into yesterday night, Monday night football. Ravens at Raiders. I told you. This was going to be a close one. I said the Ravens would win 31-30, to 30, and I was close. I'm not mad that I got this pick wrong. Packers, Saints, I'm mad I got that wrong. Cardinals, Titans, I probably could have did better than that. I didn't expect that one-sided of a game. But this game, I'm not mad I got wrong. Because it was a close game, went into overtime, and I told you it was going to be close. I do like the Raiders heading into the season. Young wide receivers, Ruggs, Edwards, Renfro. They're going to have a good offense this year. But the Ravens, I thought, had loads of talent, a little bit more experience. I thought they were going to come into week one and get the win in Las Vegas. No. Raiders got the 33-27 overtime victory, landing me a 2-3 and three record in week one of Tony G's Picks of the Week. Come on now. 73 and 49 overall throughout the history of the Tony G show. Two and three this season, however. New set of picks coming in on Thursday. Will McCormick will be back for that. We'll talk Packers on Thursday. That's what we'll do. We'll visit Packers again. We did that last Thursday with our football preview. I think this, you know, and I want to say a little bit now, but I think I'm going to hold it till Thursday because this takes a lot more time than what we have. Packers look bad, man. That's concerning. That is concerning how bad the Packers looked. I don't think it was a matter of how good the Saints looked. They look good. not trying to take anything away from that. They look good. They look dominant. Jameis Winston looks like he's prepped and ready to go and have a good season to try to rebuild his reputation as an NFL quarterback. He looks good. I'm not taking away from that. Not taking away from Alvin Kamara. Not taking away from that front seven on defense. I'm not taking away from their defense at all. But this was more so a matter. This was more of a matter. The Packers looked back that bad that it was more of a matter that the Packers just looked terrible. That did not look like a football team. That was rough. We'll talk about that on Thursday. Because that is concerning. And I think we'll have a lot to say about that too. So we'll save it for Thursday. But that was uh, Season 7, Episode 3 of the Tony G Show. Just flying by this season already. Three episodes in the books. Thanks for tuning in again. Will will be back on Thursday. We missed him today, but uh, that that'll that'll conclude the show. Cruising right along. Don't forget Ben Cole tomorrow. Tony G show interviews. He is the first one of the season. First one of the September series. Luca Kenyon will be later in September. Ben Cole. We had a good talk with him. Found out a lot about the way he thinks as a quarterback and a student athlete. And uh, we wish him the best of luck in his future. Ben Cole interview Wednesday. Then Thursday, another episode of The Tony G Show. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you on Wednesday and Thursday. The Tony G Show. Thanks for listening to The Tony G Show. Support this show on social media on Twitter and Instagram. Also make sure to subscribe and comment on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify.